Hello listeners, and welcome to Voices at Play, an actual play podcast focused on games by marginalized creators played by marginalized people. Today we'll be discussing Familiars of Terror by Elizabeth Shai Pratikin of Angry Hamster Publishing. Familiars of Terror is a unique, card-based tabletop RPG centered around the Seekers and their animal companions following their calling and pursuing their destiny for better or worse. And today with me, we have Algie. My pronouns are any and all pronouns. I am on Twitter at 11 thirds and on Tumblr at equals 11 thirds. And this is the only project I am currently involved in. So if you have a project that you'd like to get them involved in so that they can talk about your show, feel free to invite them. I'm sure that they would love to take part. I actually like super wood. I'm about to have a bunch of free time when school starts, so. And M. Hi, my name's M. My pronouns are they, them, and I am on Twitter at SketchmouseArt or Instagram at SketchMouse. I do mostly art and cosplay things. Follow me at SketchMouseArt for Salamander fan art. And Peridot. Hi, I'm Peridot Rose. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm on Twitter at Tune Elemental, and that's Tune as in cartoons. I am not currently involved in anything but this, though. And I'm Ray. Today I'm not really a host of anything, and I'm not really a mediator. We're going to keep this super cash. So I am Voices At on Twitter. I promote and do all the talking for the show. I am also Dark Dragons In on Twitter, and that is the Twitter account for my other actual play audio drama style podcast, Tales from the Dark Dragons In. If you haven't listened to it yet, you should go check it out because it's on hiatus because I am hella busy. So today we are talking, as mentioned in the intro, we're talking about Familiars of Terror. And I'm just going to open it up to the floor. Originally, this was going to be sort of a mixed thing where we had some of the GMs and some of the players, but unfortunately, everyone's schedule is kind of higgledy-piggledy, so we're doing the best we can here today. So, who has thoughts? Algie, I know you were saying that you were excited to talk about this game in particular, so why don't you take the lead on this? Well, I like the game a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I like it so much. I... I sort of, there's a lot that I like about it. I like playing two characters, which is complicated, but also very fun. Having two characters that you are embodying at the same time who are like linked together. It's like being a mini GM, but a a lot less stressful. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. And I like, I like the amount of world building that there is in this game. A lot of games are mechanics first and then world building and here world building is essential to the story of the game to the familiar's existence i think what's interesting about that is that's quite a common conversation i find in the rpg community online is that you know what's more important the rules of the story and a lot of times i think mechanics people who want to write a lot of lore tend to neglect mechanics and i think i found it really interesting that Despite the fact that this book is very, very, very lore intensive, it doesn't actually neglect the mechanics either. But I think myself, I don't tend to read a lot of lore. I can count on one hand the number of D&D books I have finished reading, despite the fact that I own several. <laughs> Whereas this book, I immediately was interested and I wanted to know more. Yeah, I think I had a similar reaction because I tend not to read a lot of D&D lore books. I know the rules of D&D, but I don't really read what is written about it so much. But when I was reading this book, I was much more interested in the setting and the concept of familiars and seekers and how different areas of the world saw them or lived. I would agree. I think as someone who's not really traditionally a fan of high fantasy, I guess, the the D&D thing never really interested me, especially in terms of the surrounding lore, like that's more of a mechanical game for me. Yeah. I think this whole book really tied me to it a lot. I was very ready to know more about the world. And I think they did a very good job of putting a world together that made sense and was unique and had a lot going on in it. So it wasn't just all one homogenous 
single area. Yeah. I think it also, from a GM perspective, it gives you a lot of seeds very early on. I know that we all were basically players, but at least I found when I was reading through the lore, I'm really interested in pursuing this one aspect of the story. It just occurred to me, keeping in mind this was two months ago, I did GM the game. So (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh wait, yeah, I ran this game. I was very interested in the idea of the ancestors. And I know that 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 seemed like an idea that resonated with a lot of people that ran it. We were all really intrigued by this idea that not only was there a part of the natural order of this world is that people and their familiars have the potential to essentially die at the same time, combine and become a giant spirit animal entity thing. But they only do so when they go through the green door um, or the green arch or something. I can't remember the name of it right now. It has been a couple months since I read it, so I apologize. And yet this gateway is locked off permanently now because it's surrounded by the badlands which are the net product of this awful catastrophe where one of the ancestors was basically nuked some of the concepts i think at like a ground level are immediately tangible and horrifying and it's not that they're written in a way that's gory or overly detailed or graphically violent or anything like that it's just there is a a genuine horror and not in the horror film sense but the horror of tragedy if you know what i mean yeah i think quite a few of us as gms were drawn to the idea that hey there's something out there and we think it might be an ancestor how many of you ended up in a game where you played a story that was along those lines yeah yeah i'm the only one who didn't (laughs) (laughs) I don't even think it's a negative, to be honest, because I think the outcome of what each of those stories was will probably be very dramatically different. Mm -hmm. One of the questions I asked last time was, what kind of stories do you feel like it lent itself to? I think that there are actually a lot of stories that it could be, because you mentioned there's the concept of exploring this piece of culture and sort of a piece of religion that was lost terribly. There's also, I don't think anybody did this. I think we were avoiding this, but you can run a war story if you want to with this For sure. because yeah. of how it's set up. It's a post-war society, ultimately. And yeah. so you st- there is still at least one culture that has walled itself off from the rest of everything that you could easily just pull people out of there and go, nope, they're antagonists now. And these people are separatists and they think I could absolutely see that. Yeah, but then in Seeker Creation, it actually talks about what Seekers are. And you can be doing so many different things based on what your goals are. You can just be helping people out on a day-to-day basis, or you can be seeking fortune and fame, sort of. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of different options because it's such a big world with so many different goals that you can do. And I like that a lot. I completely agree. What about you, Fox? I think one of the themes that came up in at least one of our games that possibly both of them is the idea of healing or rebuilding. The Badlands are typically seen as no man's land. Nothing grows there. Mm -hmm. But there was some people will like have hope about maybe finding something that can help Mm -hmm. that area. I don't I don't want to spoil anything for the game. Sorry, I'm trying to be vague, but this will come out at the end of the other episodes. Oh, okay. So as far as like healing, rebuilding kind of stories that came up in one of our games where Algae was actually playing in as well. And we are seekers were trying to protect a village that thought maybe they could restore something important to Hanel, which was that that's that important place that I think you were referring to earlier as far as the, the ancestors. We did end up burning the village down. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is, but in the it was a good cause. In in context, it'll make more sense. <laughs> I'm sure that it will. The good kind of arson. I think actually the other game we did too was about healing and about trying to fix the badlands. Yeah. It was also sort of about moving on from things, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think that you had a really great healing moment during that one too. Or as I think it had more to do with the veil, so it was more of a personal kind of 
healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my description of that episode on our Patreon is it's a salamander with teeth. Thanks. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh god. Oh. We love the salamander loved, with teeth. We loved him so we much loved though. It. it was our friend. Yeah. <laughs> I sent Sam a message. Yeah, so I just I'm imagining the giant Japanese salamander just with this big tooth goofy look (laughs) 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 kind of grin and she's like, yes, that's exactly it. And I'm just like, it's horrifying. Why? Why would you do this? It sounds amazing. Oh yeah, no, it's great. They did an excellent job but it was just one of those moments where I was just like no, I do not want this. (laughs) Make it go away. Make it stop. I love salamander friend. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, salamander from World Silver's Violet Gold. That particular game had some fantastic moments in it. That game did actually make me cry, although I was emotional oh, yeah. at, the, at the time already, but yeah. One of the things that... So the game, again, it has a lot of potential for very dark themes, and obviously also very grown-up themes. But one of the things the book talks about is ways you could essentially soften the world so that it's suitable for family play and i don't think we've really touched on that if i'm honest but it feels like especially maybe we're all just messed up puppies i don't know (laughs) it feels a lot like with the way the lore is written and a lot of the world's tone that it's a lot harder to lean into a light fluffy version of this game oh absolutely yeah um yeah, both of our games hit some pretty dark places. I would agree with you there. There's a lot of dark themes to the world, and you can make it more family-friendly, but uh, I don't know if it would hit as close to home. I feel like if you do, you'd essentially be ignoring a lot of what's written, right? So Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, if you look at secret creation in isolation and ignore the rest of the world you still pretty much got a solid creation character generation system where it's like, hey, go make an animal buddy and run around the world and have fun. Yeah. But I feel like a family game, that's kind of the extent of what it would be. Just make your own adventures. Whereas if you weren't worrying about that, so many of the seeds in the game itself already present interesting questions. They give you something to say, what would happen if? Mm -hmm. What would you do if? And all of those seeds are there for you right away. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about like picking up the pieces in sort of a post-war society and that just has so much potential darkness to it. And and you can make light stories in it, but I don't believe that it would really be as effective, I guess. The world wouldn't feel as right to me if they used the same setting, but tried to do super lighthearted stories in it. Yeah. If you were trying to go down the Digimon route, I think there would be a line there you could balance on. Because Digimon, for example, and the reason I reference Digimon is the book's page does. <laughs> it does, yeah. And then I was betrayed because it explicitly says in the text that familiars don't talk. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is an outrage! <laughs> there is a, there's a skill. There, there is can, one device, yeah. 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 You can, you can add a thing to your familiar in the process that lets them speak in simple terms, at least. Yeah. I think they specifically say it's simple sentences. You can add a thing to you that lets you speak to your familiar. Right. Or to other animals. I, I think I maybe skimped over that, because I think I sort of inherently went for the, this animal has seven arms and 12 <laughs> eyes. <laughs> oh. I was very tempted to make an animal with the lots of legs, armistice of arms, and also the detachable limbs one. Oh, God, God, yes. yes. Because then you just have something with eight limbs that can wander off. Oh, <laughs> that is a little bit scary. The detachable limbs is the wildest thing to me. I, I really so considered doing it. I did not do that one, but I did do the common animal, the giant land anteater. Oh, sorry, no, oh the, no, 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 not giant land anteater. I apologize. The giant pangolin from head to toe is roughly 4.5 foot. Unless, of course, you apply the XL tag. <laughs> <laughs> 
so my buddy is a nine foot long pangolin who has has forearms and wings made out of pangolin scales and i love him very much the problem is is that pangolins don't make noise and that's that's the that's the real drawback of making it so that familiars can't talk is if your animal doesn't make noise you inherently want to emote vocally and you can't and it's so frustrating (laughs) (laughs) yeah Pangolins don't make noise at all? No, pangolins don't have vocal cords, I don't think, because... Oh, wow. Whoa. It's, it's the same with a lot of reptiles, but with the pangolins, anteaters, etc., their tongue is as long as their body, and I think the place where the vocal cords would be are effectively replaced by the tube that allows their tongue to retract and extend. Wait, does that mean your pangolin had a nine-foot-long tongue? Oh, yeah, oh. and I took great <laughs> advantage of that. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh, I love that. Because they don't have teeth or grinding gizzards or anything either, so I took great pleasure in describing the pangolin using its nine foot long to take a familiar cookie from someone and then hand <laughs> it to my Seeker character for mashing so that it could lick the slime from her hands. <laughs> They're so cute, though. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. That, that makes me feel bad about picking a squirrel. <laughs> yeah, squirrels are great. I had a squirrel in one game. How can I have the biggest big boy? <laughs> oh, and I thought I went big with my snake, but mm-hmm. no, he <laughs> beat me there. One of our guests is about to do a game where they've chosen an anaconda and they've applied the XL tag. That's a long oh. dog. That is a big friend. <laughs> One of the things I'd, I would like to talk about is something that I strayed into in the game that I ran sort of unintentionally. By the nature of the game's design, animal on animal violence is a high probability thing that is going to happen. And if you're thinking about your entire world as a cartoon, that's not necessarily a problem because animals launch fireballs at each other and scratch one another and then they get up and they're, it's going to be okay, Ty! (laughs) And, you know, they just brush it off and they go about their day. The moment you start thinking about these things as real creatures, that becomes a lot harder to deal with. And in terms of sort of cycling back to the there's a lot of dark themes in this game i feel like the game tries really hard to be like no 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 animal kin fighting isn't a dark theme but it really super is you guys (laughs) yeah yeah did you have any fighting in your games because i think we mostly avoided it in ours Yeah. yeah so i'll tell you what happened so in my game the central plot was that there was a sighting of a creature believed to be one of the ancestors, and they went out into this abandoned town, they found signs of a struggle, and the ancestor was missing. So they pursued the tracks, and they arrive at a large oasis in a desert, which, once explored, they find there's a large warehouse in. So here's me pre-game. I'm thinking, right, well, familiars are sort of like a spirit that is attached to you. They are literally a part of you. So logically speaking, in the world, there are sports like kickboxing, and you go to kickboxing tournaments, or there's boxing tournaments or wrestling tournaments. In a world in which every single person has a creature of some kind with a magnitude more strength and physical ability than them, there's a good chance that there would be some kind of sport tournament about feats of strength between them. Like wrestling or boxing or whatever, but with anteaters. (laughs) And so I was like, yeah, exactly. I wasn't thinking they'll go there and they'll get into a fight. I was thinking there's probably fighting sports. And because of that, there's probably also underground fighting sport rings, right? Oh. Hmm. And so I was like, you know, that would be interesting if there was a city or a place where it was not allowed, and so they had to arrange meets for the people that were in the know. And so essentially, what I had was this believed-to-be ancestor creature was poached, effectively. It was taken hostage, and it was sold to the owner of this fight ring. And because it was such a large entity, there was essentially a pay-for-entry, three-on-one fight 
it's going to be nuts kind of thing. And in my head, pre-game, I was like, that sounds like the kind of thing they'll turn up and they'll show up and they'll be like, this is bad. And they'll stop it and everything's going to be fine. And they got to the place and I was describing the noises from inside and the cheering and stuff. And I, I was like, okay, I need to stop for a moment, guys. <laughs> we had like a couple minutes time out. And I'm like, you will realize what's in there. And they're like, uh-huh. I've just realized that I'm probably going to have to describe this. Mm. And I am deeply uncomfortable with this. And so there wasn't actually much combat. The, um, the combat that did happen was, fortunately, it was very high drama and it was over very quickly. Because that's another thing I love about the system is the mechanics make combat extremely quick to get through and you can just describe it like an action movie. Oh, good. Because we didn't have any combat, so like... <laughs> It's good to know that. Yeah, we, we avoided conflict. The combat system is honestly great. We'll come back to that. The thing that I would say, if I'm going to play this, what should you be warning me about? I would be saying, seriously consider finding a way around combat. Yes, the animal combat powers are super cool and interesting, but when it comes down to it, you will be in a situation where you are describing animals trying to kill each other. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, that wasn't necessarily the situation. It was still a sport. They weren't out for blood, but th that mental disconnect became no longer possible for me. But it was something I didn't necessarily anticipate because up until that exact moment, I was like, Digimon, yeah, fireballs, pepper breath, and so on. And it wasn't real until it was real. I mean, there's probably ways to run combat without it being to the death. But that's kind of how we default the combat when we play RPGs, isn't it? Exactly. And the thing is, is the game does say, you know, when a familiar hits whatever point, I think they get to harm or unconsciousness. They are removed from the scene. But I think, if I recall correctly, it basically does say, you know, death is an extreme. And unless you're an adventuring party in the Badlands doing some real heavy stuff, it's unlikely, but it's still hard to escape the real-world connotations of that situation, where these people are going to stand back now and let their animals fight each other. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't end up in any combat in the games that I was in, but that was the reason that, for my familiar, I took, for my combat powers, healing and shielding. That's the two things that I had, and I was going to try to avoid conflict if at all possible, and it, it worked out. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it's like a pretty, maybe not uncomfortable, maybe that's not the right word, but it's a pretty intense part of the subject matter there, I guess. Kind of comes with the territory of the world. Exactly. It's the kind of thing where, depending on how you handle it, it can be fun, it can be engaging and exciting, but you have to have the ability to do that mental disconnect and be like, no, we're anime. And in anime, <laughs> yeah. everything's fine. This is Pokemon. They fight for fun and nobody really gets hurt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think the one drawback of the system and the plus is that combat is very quick to resolve. The drawback of that is that because of the way the mechanics resolve, you and the GM will draw your cards at the same time. You declare in advance whether or not you're going to use a power. You draw your cards, and then there's powers you can use afterwards. It can get very, very easy to f get focused in on what your cards are doing and forget that you're supposed to be describing an encounter not necessarily saying oh my character is going to use this power it's odd because you'd think that with the mechanics resolving more simply it would lend to more storytelling more narrative driven combat but i actually found the opposite and it could just be because i wasn't used to the system yet but it felt like because i was focusing more on the flow of you choose a power, then I choose a power. We kind of did the cards and then we described how it played out rather than saying my character is going to run over and do this and then we draw the cards because you're both drawing at the same time and then you have to declare your powers afterwards. You can't say in advance, I'm going to run out in front and then curl up into a ball and defend because... You need to declare that afterwards when your power happens, and it would be weird to describe all that and go, oh, well, I guess I don't do that then. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting that it's simultaneous like that. Ultimately, so long as you don't mind working out how the that turn played out and then describing it, then it's fine, and it works really, really smoothly. How did you find the mechanics from just a general gameplay sense? Seeing as you guys didn't do combat, what sort of th things did you pull for? 
Um, we did a lot of a lot more of the skill checks. Um, yeah, we did a we failed a lot of awareness checks. <laughs> we, did. <laughs> we did. So did we. <laughs> we just weren't good at seeing things. Awareness checks are apparently everyone's weakness. <laughs> Armistice of eyes next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, the uh, traits we used those quite a bit. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think those are what we kind of focused on more than the combat powers. I think we actually might have used them to avoid combat. Like, we, Yeah, actually, that's true. I definitely did on purpose use Song of Peace, which is great. I love it. Yeah, that, that also happened in our game. I set up in an announcer booth, and Megan took the cue and got up there and used the Song of Peace through the intercom system to prevent the fight against the supposed ancestor. God, that's good. Oh, uh, yeah, that's cool. I like that. God, thank you. <laughs> that's so good. Oh, that's so good. I love that. That's interesting, and I feel like in a way the traits were kind of more fun to play with than maybe the combat would have been for us, just because there's a lot of interesting ways you can use the traits. So the, there's the Song of Peace, and the one game, one of the familiar that I had was a had a the trait called Hackbox, I believe it was, and we used that between um, my Seeker and the Familiar to make a way to translate the Salamander's garbled speech, which I, that just felt really cool doing that. I mean this wholeheartedly. I genuinely don't remember a time where I have taken part in a game where someone has so uniquely and interestingly applied a skill that their character had to a situation they couldn't have predicted <laughs> in a way that felt intuitive and natural at the same time. It seemed like your character was just a genius and they'd come up with this incredible idea on the spot and it was really genuinely brilliant. <laughs> Much like Sam was, I was incredibly impressed <laughs> at the use of that. Oh, thank you. Hold on. I am... The way that our game played out... It changed the whole scenario as well. Yeah, our game would not have played out the way it did if it wasn't for that. And it just... I don't know what Sam's original plan was, but it completely changed <laughs> whatever we were going to be doing. Because now we could communicate. Now we can talk to Salamander, friend. <laughs> That's how we became buddies. I love that Salamander. <laughs> no one else does. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. Salamander Buddy is great, but also, no. I mean, like, we we as a party unanimously decided to spare the salamander's life. Absolutely, yeah. Despite the fact that it was literally an abomination. <laughs> <laughs> uh, both in-game, law-wise, and <laughs> quite literally as a mutant genetic experiment mutation abomination. But that's fine. You know, it wasn't evil as far as you knew, so that's... <laughs> It's fine. Salamander just wanted to live in I, the Badlands. Yeah. <laughs> Not be disturbed. I I really appreciated that um, what Sam did was... Because the abominations in the game are like people and familiars who were twisted and abused to become what they became. And Sam said, it's not their fault. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. their fault. It's not like they did some awful thing. I think a lot of them were also prisoners of war that were experimented yeah. on by the by the fascists, basically. No, that's that's like explicitly a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's like the seeds of stuff are there, but so many of them just lead to we're having this very real and very serious talk about a game that is about playing someone who has an animal friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the darker themes possible allow for some very, very good scenes as far as the healing. Yeah, I think there's a lot of optimism. There's a lot of optimism. You just have to go through some serious stuff to get there. Yeah. Or you can just play it lighthearted. And actually, yeah, thinking about playing it without any of those serious themes is... I feel like it wouldn't be the whole game and the it wouldn't be the full experience. Hope and destruction kind of thing. It would be the going out as a 12-year-old on your Pokemon adventure. Not a game about... Without fighting God in Pokemon. Because <laughs> Pokemon does get a little dark in some places. Occasionally, I, I, I would agree. And again, I was uh, linking back to Digimon. I feel it's very similar in that there is a lot of hope built into the the premise but the hope is built into the premise through the fact that this world has already been through so much darkness 
Yeah, and is like continuing to go through so much darkness. Mm-hmm. And it's doing its best. It's it's working towards recovery, which is is good and important. Yeah, which was like it was good and important for me at the time that we played. That that might be why I love this game so much is because I don't want to talk too much about it. But like at the time that we played, like I was going through some stuff and it was cathartic. Yeah, I think that's important sometimes. Yeah, I can understand also how this would be a little too dark for some people. Yeah, I think it would only really get a little too dark if that was the story you were setting out for. I think that's the thing. I think it does lend itself towards hope and optimism, despite the existence of tragedy it starts you off in a position where the world is already recovering it's still struggling it's still got problems but the worst is behind us and now we have what do we do with what we've got mm-hmm. yeah which is a good message especially with how the world is now mm. <laughs> yeah i mean my my like universal recommendation for this game would be to have check-in tools on hand mm-hmm. yeah yeah yes very explicitly be ready to use those because it can it can go to some dark places our second game was basically about people watching their home slowly die while they were being extorted and exploited for basically keeping their home like it gets dark did any of your games touch on the existence of where a seeker has gone rogue fallen seeker they've got a title but i've forgotten Judge. Judge, yes. Judge. Yeah, not explicitly. So something that uh, Amr and I did was um, they ran a game just for me. And the, the theme there was that essentially there was a judge going around basically collecting veils. Oh. Hmm. You're aware that a veil if you do something to its homeland, can possess you as punishment, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This judge was going around and intentionally damaging the environments where Veils lived in order to free the Veil. So they were going to the Veil and being like, it doesn't have to be this way, you don't have to be tied to this place. Look, it's all wrecked anyway. Come and live in my arm. Huh. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. It, it was very cool. Um, but yeah, I, I think the idea of judges is really fascinating as well. The idea that, I guess, the the bad things that have happened in the world have pushed these people to feel like the solution they have is the only solution to whatever problem they're that they're trying to solve. And I think it's interesting because the character generation kind of, with the way that the calling is framed feels a lot like it almost sets you up to become that if and maybe that's just my reading of it but you know you are given a lofty goal that only you can aspire to right yeah i can definitely see where you're coming from there like that's yeah i didn't even consider that you eventually you know a lot of the judges or the premise of the judges is that well they got to the point where they have to succeed at their calling and it doesn't matter what the cost is anymore because they have to get it they have to get there i think i might sort of like that because it's not you're not required to become a judge but it is easy to see how a seeker could become a judge yeah that's that's more what i was getting yeah yeah and i think that's it's doubly interesting because then when you do encounter one it's not necessarily like this person is evil it's just this person is really dedicated. <laughs> they love their job. <laughs> yeah. This this person has gone too far where their job makes them stop caring about people. That's a really interesting... Now that I'm thinking about that, that's a really interesting way to like frame it because if you play this game more like, say, a Dungeons & Dragons type of thing, like the way that people typically play those games, like, mm-hmm. you know, you have the whole murder hobo concept and obviously that's not going to be the case in this game as much, but like... You could very easily fall into like, well, obviously we're the good guys, and you could you could very quickly turn around and say your characters are no longer the good guys. <laughs> They're yeah. too too focused on their own goals. They're not doing what's right. They're doing what they want to or what they believe is going to fix things, I guess. In order to stay the good guys, it requires caring about people, which is not something that games like D D 
do. (laughs) You have to like actively constantly reevaluate what you're doing and whether it's good. Yeah, you might be put in a position where your calling is called into question or you're given a situation where if you go down path A, you will progress along your calling, but to do so is going to harm or sacrifice something else. And you're going to have to make that conscious decision not to pursue your calling in order to do something better for someone else or something else. Pursuing your calling is one of the things that allows you to sort of gain experience and level up. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought that was interesting mechanically and like not having classes instead of having your calling and promise. So you, you don't really gain experience in this game as much as you advancement is done by if you miss roles and a couple other things. And then post game, there are those questions. And I think that's like a really interesting way to um, like have character growth play out. It's a fairly common approach in Powered by the Apocalypse systems in that you get to the end of the session and then you tick off your boxes and work out whether or not you've earned that experience this time. Is there anything we haven't talked about, Peridot, that you would explicitly like to mention that you can think of? The one thing that I'm kind of curious how everyone played with it is the trophies. I really enjoyed being able to put together like oh this is something that i got from a past adventure and it has these extra properties it's more powerful than your average adventuring tool or whatever so i had like a cloak with a lot of pockets in it and uh, all the pockets were just full of whatever but it could store up to 50 kilograms of stuff and it came very useful in the first thing that we in the first game that i played in in that there was a point at which i stuffed an entire tank full of i think lizards into Like, of, 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 like, lizardkin into my coat, essentially. And then there was another point at which there were uh, some robotic dudes who were trying to basically destroy everything. But we were we had some very volatile things there that couldn't just be immediately destroyed. And so I managed to kind of steal them away and hide them from them before they could do anything with them that would potentially hurt someone. Um, so I'm just kind of curious how, how the trophies played out for everyone, because I feel like... That's one of the more interesting aspects of character creation to me, is uh, aside from the actual familiar stuff. When I ran the game, we had originally decided that we were going to do two games. One was going to be heroes just starting out on their adventure, and the other one was going to be World Wary Veterans. And I was going to run the World Wary Veterans game, which meant everybody gets dozens of perks. You can have trophies, <laughs> uh, and just pick whatever you want. You tell me what your hero did. And I will let you have it, because I think that's great that uh, what you were saying and what I was saying tie in together, because both the perks and the trophies in terms of the Seeker, I think, are very, very interesting. Because it's not even necessarily just like, this is an item and this is what it does. It's, okay, this is an item and this is what it does, but how did you get it? Who did you get it from? Why did they give it to you? It immediately creates a backstory. But as soon as you answer those three questions. Yeah. No, it, it like immediately adds to what your character yes. is. Yeah. I, I loved the questions bit for both the trophies and the titles because it does create a lot of backstory. I think for my first character, my trophy was like this belonged to my grandmother who was in the war or whatever. Um, but I didn't actually use it at all. <laughs> I just made backstory with it. Yeah, I think I didn't use my trophy in the first one, but I did enjoy coming up with the little backstory for it. Similarly, I know the effect was that it gave off fireworks. So the reason that oh, my you character gave it to the salamander, yeah, I did gave it to the salamander. Um, yes, you did. So that was the thing that I did with it. But uh, my my character, the reason that they had it was because they kind of cobbled it together from other bits of tech, and that was sort of like also just I gave it to them for character development reasons because they're a mechanic and they like tinkering with things so i like that the trophies that both like titles and trophies add to character building i think when we were talking about like how do you run the game as a light thing i think the titles and trophies actually are a perfect example of how you would do that thinking about it because a lot of the trophies are you know whose problem did you solve you know, who was mad about it? And yeah, I think there is one that, one title that's lit. What giant thing did you do to stop that thing from happening? So you can just play off of those. Yeah, exactly. So as the GM, you could be like, oh, well, you made that person really mad. So now 
they are you know they're out to get you and they're sending their army of peasants with frog kin after you and you just i don't know wake up in a bed surrounded by frogs (laughs) (laughs) so i i don't know i feel like the backstory stuff is in terms of the titles and trophies i think is actually perfect for creating its own little world that doesn't necessarily have to rely on the heavier, more intense stuff of the game book. Unfortunately, in my second game, where I was the player, I don't think I even gave my character a trophy. I think I explicitly was like, no, I want more titles. Because it gives you the option. You can have two titles, two trophies, or one of each, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, no, I want two titles. I just <laughs> want to have a longer name. <laughs> I, I like that there's so many different kind of cultures built, like baked into this world. I like that there are different cultures and they don't have a race attached. Like D&D. Don't like that. Do like different cultures. Uh, the, the complexity of all the different cultures and civilizations was very, very cool. I was really hoping to have Cass and Pidge in the conversation although pitch didn't get to play because obviously there is some borderline indigenous influences a lot throughout and i was very curious to hear what their thoughts were on how that was handled because obviously no one indigenous person can speak for all of them but really curious to get their thoughts on that but alas having all the different cultures and i really like actually there's a lot of different games that will talk about how their world's accepting of gender and their world's accepting of gender presentation but then it's like not represented in the text anywhere else except for that one chapter where they say it's fine and nobody cares whereas in this book it made a point of specifying there are trans people there are people who are gender fluid gender presentation doesn't exist the same way that it would here you can be a man who wears clothes we would think of as feminine and no one will bat an eye and then what really stood out to me is that it then went on to say that isn't to say that this world is flawless. It's not. It's got a whole bunch of problems. It's just that these ones aren't it. Yeah. I really liked that because I think far too often when games try to be inclusive, they do so by saying everything here is just perfect and it's fine. Yeah, don't worry about it. And I um I liked the way that it there's I can't find it right now, but there's a section about pronouns and it says that when during the bonding ceremony when you become an adult you announce your pronouns and then it also says that like change is fine it's not unusual exactly not even necessarily about pronouns like pronouns sexuality stuff like that it's not unusual to change your mind later which i'm gender fluid and so that felt good i don't like you don't have to pick one thing to be forever yeah yeah, that's exactly the section that I was going to mention. Like, I I love that little piece of it being so directly represented, I guess. Like, yeah, I think it's really good. <sighs> I feel like we can talk about this game in circles for a while because it, <laughs> it's so there's big. very few. Yeah, that's exactly it. Very big. There's a lot to read, but also there was no point really where I was like, I really just want to get to the good parts. Tell me how to play the game. I was... Mm-hmm consistently i think the only parts that i really glazed over were when you get this pdf the first time it's like wow this is a hundred something pages until you quickly realize that once you get past all the law stuff which is still a good chunk of it a lot of those pages are just very very good examples lots and lots and lots of very very good examples um and I found that really helpful because even though it tells you this is how you create your own title, this is how you create your own trophy, it's also like, if you don't have time for that, here's 40 of them to get you started. <laughs> yeah, I think as like a, a new player to this game, it was fairly newbie-friendly, I guess. Because mm-hmm. like, yeah. wait, I, I think what scares a lot of people away from things like D&D is that it is very rules-heavy. There's a lot to... Oh, yeah. There's just so many things to know and i felt like i had a good understanding of this game i was just after reading the rules so you know what's interesting that now that you say that is from a gm perspective as well often you know you'll be in the group of friends everybody's heard about D. someone's like let's play D. okay who's going to be the gm and that 
the premise of being the GM is very daunting because you're like, I have to know so much. I have to be able to do so many things. I have to prepare so much. As a GM coming to this game for the first time, not only are there seeds throughout the text of different ideas that might spawn some, you know, imagination thing. It's got tons of world lore, so you don't have to worry about creating a city or anything like that. You don't even have to worry about the difficulty of things. You don't have to think, hey, what's it going to like? Oh, they want to climb that wall. What's the difficulty of that going to be? Because the players have already decided that for themselves by deciding what skills they were going to do. Yeah, yeah, because mm -hmm. the... Yeah. To me, that was revolutionary. Yeah, I don't know. Did we talk about... No, we, we haven't touched on it. Well, the, the way that skill checks work is uh, it's played with a deck of cards. So you're drawing a card and trying to get a number that's under your skill. So I don't remember all of them, right? I think it was awareness, wit, might, charm, and agility. Yes, that sounds right. So say you had like an eight in might and you need to make that check. You're hoping to draw an eight or lower out of the deck of cards. And any higher is a, is a fail, I believe. Yeah, is exactly. And that is just so good. <laughs> yeah. And you automatically know if you passed or failed. Exactly. I think the only way the GM really influences that or has to influence it is if they turn around and go, no, this should really be higher. And they'll give you like a negative one. Yeah, yeah. Or a yeah. plus one or whatever. I'm trying to remember if that came up in any of our games. I think it, it, it came up a couple of times in some of our games where it's like, well, that's a very cool idea, but it's also extremely hard <laughs> yeah. to try and do that. So I think I game with Brandon. Yeah, I think there was something we were trying to do that uh that we had to have a modifier for, but it was just very simple to figure that out as well. There was like one thing that was a minus one and there was another thing that was a plus one because we were all working together, so we got a yeah. <laughs> Sam fairly gave you advantage for your translator as well <laughs> at some point. I think that genuinely is a game changer in that regard because it reduces a lot of the mental load because as a player, you can decide, I want to make a character who's good at this thing. And you can more or less approximate how easy it's going to be to succeed at things of that nature because your stats, rather than being roughly equivalent to blah, the only numbers you can draw are 1 to 13. And if you set your points at 10, there's only a 3 and 13 chance you're going to fail. Yeah. <laughs> and you set your own points. Like, you exactly. decide what you're bad at, what you're good at. Mm-hmm. I like that you can make yourself really bad at something for just a little bit of improvement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was good that you can. I'd love to make my characters really, really bad at one thing sometimes, though. Yeah, no, I, I am exactly the same um, game where I played with. Um, I was like, I'm going to play with this other person who's likely to make a character that's fast and intelligent. So I'll make a dumb, stupid, smashy guy. <laughs> and then I was playing on my own and I was like, oh dear, how am I going to solve a thing? And I, I do like just stepping in on like kind of the same subject. I do really like how, unlike other games where like, you don't set difficulty for a role, like say Powered by the Apocalypse, for example, any of those games, I like that in this one, you have a lot more control as a player over how difficult a particular thing would be. Because, you know, if I'm playing masks or something and I roll something with plus savior or whatnot, I can only have so much control over how much better I'll be at that thing. You can only have a maximum of plus four, I think, in masks. But I like the idea that as a player, I have very fine-tuned control over exactly how good my character is at any given thing. Exactly, yeah. I, I really enjoy that aspect. Yeah, because you can really narrow down the odds of failure. And you can also, depending on your titles and trophies, you can do that even further. You can go, oh, well, you know, once a game, I can give myself advantage on this. So if it's really clutch that I have to punch stuff through a wall with a toothpick, I'm going to do it. <laughs> no, and I, I did do that in my game. I used my quick title to get a plus one while trying to get the drop on someone, I think is what it was. I think that's really... There, it just feels like you have so many customization options, but that's not at the expense of making the game really hard to understand or hard to follow. It's very straightforward and simple. 
And it is also the case that if you want to be really, 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 really good at something, you can't just be really, 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 really good at everything. You actually have to make sacrifices to be that good at that one thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think that also makes a difference because for anyone listening to us saying fine-tuning, the players have control, they can't break the game. <laughs> All you have to do is give them situations where, hey, you can't really solve this easily by smashing it. And if you want to, you're going to have to think of a very clever way to do so. Due to time, uh, it's going on quarter to one here, I am going to say we should wrap up here. So if you had one piece of advice to give to a player or GM or both that has never played this game before, what would it be? Paradox. I guess I have two because I did say earlier about having uh, safety tools available and ready at your table. I think that's a really important thing in most games, but especially in a game like this where themes can get really heavy. But my other thing, the thing I haven't already said, is really be willing to deep dive into the lore because a lot of people in my experience as playing as a GM and whatnot don't really get too into the lore and they sort of expect the GM to build the world around them. But as a player, I think in this game especially, it's very important to have an idea of what's what the world is like and what's going on and how the nations interact with each other and whatnot. I think that's really central to the themes of the game to have at least a basic understanding of that. So I'd say really be willing to read that quarter of the book that is just lore because it's, first of all, really good. And second of all, really sets the stage for the kind of game that you're actually playing. And you can have a very basic grasp of it and still not be overwhelmed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My advice for a first-time player is think carefully in advance about the kind of gameplay that you want to have. The customization that you have, the ability to streamline your character is very very cool however it's also very easy to unintentionally pigeonhole yourself and find yourself in situations where there's only one or two ways out because your character is not capable of anything else but a good way to counter that is to have your seeker be one style of gameplay and have your familiar be another style completely You can go both ways. You can have a familiar that directly supports the style of gameplay that you want for your seeker, but you can also have a familiar that just plays completely counter to that person and have your own little balanced party between the two of you. And that's a perfectly valid way to play. Uh, Remember to mark down your fail rolls because that's how you learn things and grow as a character. And this is the thing that I forgot to do in one of my games and I looked at my sheet and I'm like, oh no, I don't have any advancement points. That's that's a very valid thing to note. It's uh, a little uh, maybe coming from um, mostly playing D anD D stuff for me to remember. So that would be my advice. I would say don't be afraid of failed rolls or failed draws. I guess we don't really roll. Oh yeah, draws. But um, <laughs> it's okay. Even the text refers to them as rolls on more than one occasion. <laughs> okay. Well, don't be afraid of failed rolls, not just because they can give you experience, but because the game is not designed to punish you severely for failing. So like it's it's okay. Have fun with it and do your do your dumb stuff even if it's gonna go bad. Yes. Do it anyway. <laughs> You've been listening to Voices at Play. Building a table for everyone. If you've enjoyed the game we're playing, and it sounds like it might be a good fit for you, please check the links in the show notes and on our website where you can find a direct route to order a copy for yourself and get playing today. Voices at Play is completely not-for-profit, but it does incur costs. This show is brought directly to you by the generosity and support of listeners like yourself who support us on our Patreon. $1 pledges are the lifeblood that make this project work. So if you're able, please head over to patreon.com forward slash voices at and pledge to join our little community, working to make the tabletop role-playing space a more diverse, vibrant, and inclusive place for all. Until next time, we'll just keep on playing.